continuing our series in Philippians this afternoon. And you uh, can find that passage on page 8 of your bulletin. You can also, of course, turn there uh, in your Bible. As you're turning there, um, I wonder um, how you would answer this. Uh, What challenges do you think we're going to face as a new church? What challenges do you think we're going to face as a new church? As we try to live out this mission that God has called us to in these surrounding neighborhoods, what will be our big roadblocks? And there's probably a lot of ways that we can answer that. And maybe we've already faced some of them, right? Uh, Upheaval in meeting space, where we're going to meet. Uh, Trying to figure out how to gather during the ups and downs of of COVID, of the pandemic. Um, And who knows what the future holds if that's what we have in our short life together already. Um, Two big categories that will for sure be challenging because they've historically been challenging for the church. How we relate to each other and how we relate to outsiders. Um, Our life in here together, how we relate as a church family, but then how we engage with the world out there. These will have bearing on our mission as a church. And that's what this passage is about. How can we interact with each other and with our community in such a way that we help advance God's mission rather than get in the way of God's mission? Philippians 2, 12-18 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Father, we do in fact thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to try to figure it out on our own, but you have spoken to us. And we pray that you would meet us now as we consider your word. Would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand. And Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So remember the Titans, which came out, I believe, in the year 2000, so over 20 years ago, uh, is just guaranteed one of the greatest football movies of all time. Tells the story of T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia, 1971. This is just after desegregation. Denzel Washington plays the head coach who is assigned to this newly desegregated high school. His coaching staff and his team are almost equally divided black and white. And that's a huge part of the story. Um, Most of the story is about dealing with these racial tensions. And the team is deeply divided. Um, There's fights in practice, if you remember. Um, They don't talk to each other. Um, The two sides don't. They'll intentionally miss plays during games to make one another look bad. 
And so there's, there's all kinds of infighting on the team and division on the team. Um, but there's also this external pressure from the whole community. I don't know if you remember this. The head coach's house is vandalized. vandalized. The uh, refs are paid um, to throw the game. Um, this tension in Remember the Titans, it's both this internal division and infighting with teammates and this external opposition from the community. And it affects their ability to try to accomplish their mission to do their work of what? Playing football. And winning games and being who they're supposed to be as this, this new team. Um, the tensions of how we, we relate to each other and how we relate to outsiders can really impact the mission of the church. And that's what Paul's getting at in this passage. So let's look directly at these two ideas this afternoon, these two challenges. First, relating to each other and relating to outsiders. First, let's talk about relating to each other. Um, as you look at this passage, I don't know how verse 12 hits you, but it's tempting to sort of um, key in on verse 12 and sort of take it out of its context, in the, in the context especially of the entire letter from Paul to the Philippians. But context really matters in the Bible, as it does in all of life. What's the context of Paul's letter? Um, one of the main things that Paul keeps going back to again and again in this letter is the need for the Philippians to be united to one another, to stop being divisive, to stop competing against each other. And he just finished talking about this in the previous passage, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We looked at it last week. It's also our memory passage for this series. It's probably the most famous passage in all of Philippians. It's one of the few for sure. But in that passage, he highlighted the beautiful selflessness of Christ and how his selfless love empowers us to love each other in that same way, to have the same mind, the same love. And so it's coming out of that context that he calls us to in 1 through 11, where he gives us 12 and 13, and he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so he's telling them, all right, you've been living as God's people. You've been following the way of Jesus, not only when I was with you, but now when I'm not with you. And so then he tells them, all right, now go work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we're like, wait, what? <clears throat> what, what do you mean by that? All right, let's talk about this working here. Okay, verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation by, with fear and trembling. Two things that doesn't mean. First, he does not mean that our salvation is accomplished by our works. He's not saying work to earn your salvation. Anytime we come across something in Scripture that feels a little bit unclear or we're unsure about the meaning, you want to go someplace in Scripture that is clear in talking about a similar topic. Okay, the same author Paul says in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. He's not saying that we work to earn our salvation. That's the first thing he's not saying. The second thing he's not saying is that our salvation is half Jesus and half us. Um, that like Jesus kind of does his part and now it's like, all right, Philippians, people, resurrection, now it's time to do your part. This is like kind of a 50-50 deal. Again, by grace we've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing, not even half of your own doing. 
It's all Jesus. Paul's abundantly clear about that. Which, as an aside, I don't want to breeze past that if you are here, and maybe that's your first time hearing that. Maybe you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself a Christian or someone who goes to church very often, and so maybe your thought, your assumption has been that to be a Christian means to do good things to make God happy so that you can be saved from hell. Maybe that's how you've thought about it. That's actually not how the Bible talks about following Jesus. The Bible says that our sin is so bad that we're incapable of doing that. That we need to be rescued. And that Jesus loved us so much that he came to rescue us and to do that work for us. To do the very thing we couldn't do for ourselves. To live a perfectly righteous life. To go to the cross to pay for our sins, which we couldn't do on our own. And so now we receive and rest on Jesus and what he has done. That's the best definition of faith I've ever heard. Receiving and resting on Jesus for what he has done for us. And so maybe that's your first time hearing that. That's really important to grasp as we think about this passage, that our rescue by God is a gift of his grace, not a result of works. All right, so that's off the table. What is Paul telling them? What's he telling us? He's saying to continue to more and more live out the reality of your secure salvation in Jesus and to do so really seriously, to take it really seriously. That salvation, he says, that is yours in Jesus, that needs to shape how you live. Think about what's happening in this church, squabbling, division, infighting. A few verses later in our passage, verse 14, he's going to tell them specifically where this is going. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So he gives them further clarity on what it's going to look like for them to live out the reality of their salvation. He's saying, Philippians, stop grumbling and get on the same page with each other. But he doesn't stop there. He reminds them of the power behind their obedience in verse 13. 12 and 13 are held together For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's saying you're not on your own in this. As you continue to live out the reality of your salvation, particularly as it relates to this infighting problem in the church, you are not on your own. God is at work in you, so get on board with what he's doing. And Paul's been really consistent about that from the beginning. You can remember all the way back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, this is a great verse to put to memory where he says that God who began that work in you, God who began that work in you is going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So he's already guaranteed that God's at work and God's going to continue that work. He's going to complete that work. He's saying, get on board with that work that he's doing. Uh, growing up, there was a theme park um, called Worlds of Fun that we would go to pretty regularly. It's similar, something like Six Flags, roller coasters, the whole bit. Um, one of the rides uh, that you could do, it, they let you drive these, like, um, the, they, these cars that look just like the uh, original like, Ford Model T. And you were able to drive along, like you know, control the car and drive along this path in the park. And as a kid, to be able to sit in the driver's seat of a car And to drive the car, especially these cool old Model Ts, it was awesome. I loved it. But then I realized something as I got older. I wasn't actually driving all on my own. 
Uh, the gas pedal and the brake system were like heavily calibrated in such a way that you could only go so fast and only get so close to the car in front of you. And there was actually a track in the middle of the road that we were driving on so that you, there was no way you could steer the Model T off the road you were driving on. That track would always keep you on course. But it was set up to where you were guaranteed to complete that course in a safe way while you were also able to participate in that driving experience by really steering the car and really controlling the pedals. Uh, the outcome and the safety were guaranteed, but you had real agency over how the car drove. Paul is telling us, God is at work in you. Uh, the outcome of your salvation and transformation are guaranteed. And you can either participate in the work he is doing, or you can push against the work he's doing. And the Philippians were pushing against God's work in their lives by their disunity. The question for us is, are we participating in God's work in our lives or are we pushing against it? Because anytime someone who is a follower of Jesus disobeys God, we're pushing against that work that he's doing. It might be good to just spend some time this week thinking and praying and journaling, asking God, God, show me, first of all, how you're at work in my life and help me to know, am I participating in what you're doing or am I pushing against what you're doing. And just to put a point on it, let's talk about grumbling that he mentions in this passage. What does grumbling look like for you? Um, all right, kids, maybe grumbling is you're grumbling about having to wake up early for school, which you don't have to do tomorrow. But you're grumbling about having to get up early. Maybe it's the food that is on the plate in front of you at dinner. Like, oh no, not that again. Maybe you grumble about having to do certain chores around the house. I think about grumbling in my own life, and I, as I was thinking about this, I realized that I often start every day subconsciously thinking, everything today must work out perfectly and conveniently for me. Subconsciously, I don't choose to think that way, but, but so often I start every day that way, that this will be a good day as long as everything goes perfectly and conveniently in my favor. Uh, which you can imagine, like, instantly there are opportunities for me to grumble about five minutes into my day. All right, think about that attitude in the midst of a group of people. And how if, if everyone comes into a shared space with, as long as this goes perfectly and conveniently for me, it'll be great. I mean, get ready for some serious fireworks if that's how a group of people are gathering together. Um, Paul was really serious about the Philippians dealing with this grumbling and this disunity. He somehow has addressed it in every passage along the way. What would it look like for us as a new church to be really serious about addressing our potential for disunity? How can we be thoughtful about that now in these early days as we relate to one another? couple of things I think it for sure means. First is um, just knowing that this is difficult is a big deal. To not be surprised when we're battling disunity and division and getting sideways with each other. That that's like kind of like human brokenness 101 with a group of people. 
So to not be surprised by it, Paul's spending a lot of space in his letter to the Philippians talking about it. So don't be surprised when we're tempted towards division and grumbling with each other. Secondly, be willing to have hard conversations with each other. Um, circle back with each other. Lean in with someone when you feel off with them. Our default, this is human nature, when we feel disconnected from someone, is to then start telling a story in our minds as to why we feel disconnected from someone. And then we let that story start to shape the reality of how we relate to that person. All the while, we've never leaned in and actually talked to the person. And it just goes on and on, and just the division goes like this. We will not have healthy community unless we're willing to have lovingly hard conversations with each other. And you can imagine that would undermine the mission of what God has called us to. That's what Paul's speaking into over and over and over in Philippi. But it's not just relating to one another that presents a challenge in our mission. It's also relating to outsiders. You know, it feels like these things could be two different sermons, but Paul ties both these things together. And as he's talking about the Philippians, how they relate to one another, it bleeds in almost seamlessly to how he's talking about how they relate to outsiders. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So Paul is talking about how the Philippians should interact with those in their city who don't believe in Jesus. And he says two things are going to be important as you interact with those outside of your church body that don't believe in Jesus. And the first thing he says is this, is that our lives should look different. As followers of Jesus, as those who've been transformed by Him and are being transformed by Him, our lives should stand out. Verse 15, look at that language. Blameless, innocent, children of God, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. These are like major contrast words. Blameless, innocent, without blemish. Crooked, twisted generation. And sometimes culture around us, it, it just it feels. There are just things that happen or that we observe that just feel so crooked and twisted. And sometimes it really is. Do you know where Paul gets that term? He actually gets it from Deuteronomy. These words were originally used to describe God's people. This, these words, crooked and twisted, des- described Israel when they were in the wilderness grumbling against God. So that term is not just for um, bad people and bad culture out there, but it's actually us when we turn away from God and grumble against Him. And so that should take away any sense of pride that we should have, that we have somehow figured it out. Because sometimes this is us. But the fact remains that sometimes the culture around us, it really is. It's crooked and twisted. It's totally anti-kingdom of God. And Paul is saying that in the midst of that, our lives should stand out as beautifully different. Um, The drive from my house to where our church office is is like a four or five minute drive. And so I kind of cut through neighborhoods to get over there. And I noticed just this week as I'm like really, really, really ready for spring, um, I was driving down a street and pretty much all the, the yards on this street had like dormant yellow grass. And then there was one yard that was like bright green 
golf course grass. And it got me really excited for everyone's grass to be green again and for it to be warm and sunny. But what was interesting is that um, all the yellow dormant grass, it didn't look especially bad because that was just kind of the norm. But that green grass was beautiful. And it really stood out. Living as a follower of Jesus in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation is beautiful. I wonder if you think about it that way. It's not an adversarial relationship. It's living this beautiful life in the midst of something that is not as beautiful. Think about the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are not hostile attributes. These are beautiful attributes. Uh, When we see these things in other people, we're drawn to them. So this is our calling in the midst of a world that lives by a very different standard, to have a life that looks beautifully different. And Paul doesn't just call us to a different life. He also tells us to have a love that reaches out. A love that reaches out. Look at verse 15 again. He says that we are to shine as lights in the world. So a beautiful fruit of the Spirit life is an attractive life. It actually shines like a light. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, He said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so Paul is telling the Philippians here in this letter, hey, as you get your internal family life together, and as your lives look beautifully different than the pagan world in Philippi, this crooked and twisted generation that you're living in, you will actually be used by God to shine as lights, and others are going to come to know Him. It's not an either or. It's not either live a beautifully different life or have a love that engages the culture. Those things are always held together. It's always both. I have a friend who um, in the past was deep, deep, deep into the world of using drugs and selling drugs. Uh, He came from a family um, with resources. Uh, This friend lives in another city. He came from a family with resources And so um, when he got into it, he got like deep, deep, deep into it. And he tells a story um, of just how lost he was in this world where he was literally at one point traveling around. um, He he would like target concert venues and sell drugs at these venues because he just knew his his target market, knew what he was doing. This was just so his world. Um, And um, he was far gone in this world, but it all began to change for him when he met an older man who was a Christian, who um, they shared a common interest of cycling. And so they started riding bikes together. And through cycling, a friendship started. And God ended up using this older man to not only bring my friend into sobriety, but to bring my friend into the kingdom of God. And as I've heard my friend tell this story, Um, it would have been really easy for this older Christian man to just look at my friend and just see someone who is lost in the drug world and think, this is twisted and crooked and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. 
But instead, he had a love that reached out to my friend and they started riding bikes together and built a friendship. And God used it to totally transform his life. That's a big example. What about lots of small examples in our surrounding neighborhoods? Dozens and dozens of people um, leaning in, living a beautifully different life in a way that shines like a light with a love that reaches out. Small, little everyday ways maybe happening over a conversation at the mailbox. God could use that to totally transform this area. I wonder what that would look like for you to have both a beautifully different life and a love that reached out. And I wonder even who might, God might be bringing to mind as you think about this love that reaches out. Um, so in Remember the Titans, there's this amazing scene, a really transformational moment. They're away at football camp together. The head coach wakes everyone up early, takes them on this grueling run, and the run ends at the Gettysburg battlefield. And Denzel Washington, amazing actor, the head coach, this is what he says to his team. He says, he's pointing to the field and it's still, the sun has not come up yet. They're exhausted. You can see their breath. They're sweating. He says, this is where they fought the battle of Gettysburg. 50,000 men uh, died right here on this field, fighting the same fight that we are still fighting among ourselves today. If we don't come together right now on this hallowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll learn to play this game like men. And that's the turning point in the movie. The music gets loud. They come back from camp, ready to attack the season. Um, the move for this team to go from the internal fighting and division, the external relationship with the community, it took massive transformation, most of which happened at that camp. Do you know the transformation that's offered to you in Jesus? We are all after transformation. Do you know that it ultimately only comes from Jesus? He's the one that can give us peace. Paul says for he himself is our peace, that he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He did that all on the cross. Jesus is our transformation. He is our peace. He's the one who transforms us into a people who can really love each other and really be united to each other. Um, he's the one who can transform us into really little by little more and more living beautifully different lives in our neighborhoods. He's the one who can transform us to have eyes to see the one where we can reach out in love and begin to speak truth and grace into their life. And where does all this lead? Paul's favorite theme, to joy. The end of the passage, 17 and 18. Joy for Paul. Joy for the Philippians. And guess what? Joy for us. There is joy in following Jesus. And there is great joy in being transformed by Jesus. And that is the invitation for you this afternoon. To fall down before Him, to surrender everything to Him, and to ask Him to begin His work of transformation in you. Let's pray together and ask God for that. Father, thank You that Your love for us is real. 
Uh, Your love for us took on flesh uh, in the person of Jesus. And God, we thank you that because he really did come and live and die on our behalf and rise again, that we can gather as your people, the church, uh, that we can relate well to each other, love each other as a family, and that we can love our neighborhoods really well. We can live beautifully different lives. We can uh, have a love that reaches out to those who don't know you. But this is all the work of your Spirit. And Father, we pray that you would use uh, the, the messiness of us learning to do this together to grow your kingdom, to bless this mission that we're on together. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so.